Before we get to this episode, just to say thanks to everyone who's bought my new book, Champion Thinking, How to Find Success Without Losing Yourself. Published by Bloomsbury, the response has been terrific. It's an Amazon bestseller. It's been top 20 in the airport charts consistently, and the reviews have been terrific right across the board. And if you like this episode that you're about to hear on Flow, you'll be sure to enjoy Champion Thinking. Head to my website, simonmundy.com or Amazon, Waterstone, Smiths, places like that to get your copy. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort. So you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. This is Don't Tell Me The Score, the podcast that uses sport to explore life's bigger questions. My name is Simon Mundy, and each week I sit down with an expert from the biggest sporting names in the world to Buddhist monks, neuroscientists, psychologists, and philosophers. We discuss a theme that tells us something insightful and important about life and how best to live it, from the importance of self-acceptance to facing addiction and developing resilience, right through to getting your circadian rhythms in sync and how to sleep better. Sport is a metaphor for life, and in this podcast, I aim to prove that right. I always like hearing from you, so the best way to get in touch is via my website, simonmundy.com, or I'm at Simon Mundy on social media. In this episode, I'm talking to former Wales captain Sam Warburton about managing people. Sam Warburton, what a delight to have you on Don't Tell Me The Score. Thank you very much. No, great to be here. So, listen, you're a bit of a, a unique sportsman, aren't you, in that you're actually enjoying being retired. I feel so guilty saying it as well because you hear so many players who struggle in retirement um, and they keep playing because they probably fear what it's going to be like in the real world. And But no, I was... Um, I feel bad saying it because I know there's players who have been struggling, but no, I'm really enjoying retirement, which is... Uh, I feel very lucky to be to be doing so. A pig in... Anyway. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, listen, right, I, I rattled through Open Side, thoroughly enjoyed it. Thank you. 
you're very open it about your your feelings, the th- your thoughts. You know, you've detailed times you've cried on the pitch uh, and off it. You've got loads, obviously, of, of career highlights. For example, stealing the slam from England at the Millennium, uh, captain in the Lions, though that under 14s when you realised you weren't half bad. But I said, where I want to start was that really interesting point where you talk about having a Lions shirt when you were young and then putting it away and saying, I'm not going to basically put on a lion shirt again until it's the real deal and then fast forward x years and you were given the shirt and you were looking at it and you talk about almost willing it into it into existence I, I was desperate to play number seven for the british and irish lions so obviously above all i wanted to i mean i wanted to play for cardiff blues and for wales but that's why i guess i'm content sitting here now because i played for the lions at number seven in two different two different test series so yeah i was given a shirt when i was young and i used to wear it everywhere you know and that was my pride and joy when I was about 14, but I put it away because I thought the next one I've got to wear has got to be a real one. And I was probably unusually motivated and dedicated for my age, and then as a professional as well, to be able to ensure that I got to that point, almost to the level of obsession almost. But So eventually, yeah, in 2013, when I did get my seven shirt, that was like a real great individual moment for me because that was like 10 years of sacrifice. It all paid off. And I got my dream, really, of playing number seven, open side for the... Um, for the British and Irish Lions, which is why the book is called Open Side, you know, because I've played Open Side Flanker, but it was going to be called something like Too Big, Too Fast, Too Strong, or something quite <laughs> alpha male rugby. And then they started, the text starts coming back, and they're like, wow, this is a lot more um, honest, and you're sort of putting yourself in a vulnerable position, you know, because some people probably aren't willing to talk about how they struggle through their professional career. And I loved it, and I'm a very confident person, but it gets challenged at times. You know, you get, I'm, even the most strong willed people can have moments of self doubt. So all these things started coming back, which is why uh, it was called Open Size. Yeah. I guess it's pretty honest. Uh, and you talk about willing that shirt into being and looking, looking at it in kind of disbelief in that hotel room, but you do also say, you know, between those two points when you refused to wear the shirt as a young man and then actually getting the shirt, there were all these years of sacrifice and hardship and relentless self-improvement. And what I enjoy as well in the book, you you detail seven kind of uh, Ps. We'll call them the seven Ps, which uh, are the keys to things like captaincy, leadership, but also sort of general self-improvement, I would say. Like anyone could apply all of these things, really. And the first one that you focus on is, is knowing who you are. So can you just tell me... Well, I mean, you talk about yourself as introverted, sensing, feeling, judging, which is to do with something called the Myers-Briggs model. But what, what is the importance in in knowing who you are? Why is it so important? So I had a, um, a quite a bit of coaching from a sports psychologist when I was younger. He didn't work necessarily in just sport. You know, he works in... Is this Andy? So Andy McCann's... Oh, what is. a ledge. So honestly, he'd be fascinating. Honestly, he's a brilliant guy and a uh, good friend now. So I used I met him uh, through the Welsh Rugby Union, and um, he was there working as, in a sports capacity, of course. But he's done stuff in you know the military and politics and all sorts, Olympics and stuff. He's you know he's done really good roles, and he's fantastic at what he does. So he sort of gave me the best bit of advice, really. Like you mentioned, I'm naturally very introverted person. So probably what people would think would be the complete opposite of a rugby captain. What you'd expect normally be a really big sort of alpha male dominant mm. figure extroverted figure to be captain of a rugby team but I was very introverted but the best bit of advice Andy actually gave me was like always be true to yourself so people say who do you model yourself off or who did you want to be like as a player or a leader and I always thought no one I always wanted to be my own person and Andy sort of helped me realise that because that's why I probably felt pressured when I was given the captaincy I felt I had to be this person that I wasn't 
but I, I made sure that I wasn't. I did it my own way and my own style. So making sure I was always being true to myself, did what made me happy and what I thought was right. Because if you try and fake things, people see straight through it. I've seen captains who try to be someone they're not and it stands out like a sore thumb. So figuring out what your strengths are, who you are as a person and how you want to lead in your own unique way was really important for me to, to do that. And Andy helped me get to that point. He helped you in a number of ways, didn't he? I, I enjoyed him talking about, for example... Um, the visualizations he got you to do. So he got you to visualize your ball carrying skills from various angles. And this sounds like a really powerful exercise to kind of increase your confidence in a specific area. Can you just explain what he did? So before games, I used to meet him because he was with a team. So we'd meet in a a room in a team hotel, private quiet room. And then, so before a game, uh, say like there's four aspects to my plays. One might be like running with the ball. The other one might be making a tackle. Another instance might be catching the ball in a line-out. I would visualise that in slow motion and at full speed from my perspective, from the opposition player's perspective, from the referee's perspective, and then from the crowd. And I'd watch, they'd all be really good, powerful, explosive examples, and I'd live them sort of in my mind. You know, and this would take me quite a long time to do. It's probably 20 minutes or so or 30 minutes of mental sort of imagery, really. Then when I finished a session and the game was coming up in two hours' time, you almost feel like that you've half played a game you're sort of mentally so primed so when I when I finished those sessions I was ready to run through a wall you know like I was so so ready so I think it's kind of um, overlooked particularly during the start of my career the psychology of sport and how powerful the mind can actually be and I spent particularly a lot of coaches who probably didn't play with any of that help might think it might be a bit of an old school thought that you don't need sport psychology and towards the end of my career I probably didn't need it didn't use it too much to be honest because I was very sort of self-assured and you know I was fine coping with all the coping strategies that I learned just were suddenly very natural to me but in my early days I needed that and uh, that's where Andy helped me so yeah that's sort of an example I did that with uh, injury as well so I was injured. yeah this was fascinating this was I mean this really does speak to the power of the mind go on so I, I basically had a calf tear which I should have been out for about four weeks and we were playing New Zealand in two weeks time and I hadn't played New Zealand before, and it was my big chance to sort of come up on the world stage. So I got injured against Australia, and I had an MRI scan, yeah, uh, grade two tear in the calf, should be out for sort of four to five weeks. And I remember I was a bit gutted chatting to uh, Andy about this. He said, well, we can get you back, mate. And I was like, how do you mean? And he explained to me about um, visualising myself getting better. So I, I bought into it, and um, I spoke to our head of uh, medical, uh, a guy called Prav Mathema, who's a, a brilliant, top, top-class medical professional who works with the Welsh Rugby Union and he was the the Lions physio and I, I told him what I wanted to do he said mate I totally believe in this this this, this works so I basically every single day um, at least once or twice a day for two weeks I visualized and I learned about the anatomy of my injury and what was wrong what what needed to happen to make it better and I just visualized it getting better by like trying to send like positive energy and blood flow to my calf to improve it and then yeah two weeks later I was fit and I played against the All Blacks and played 80 minutes and I was fine so um, yeah, that's sort of another example of sort of sports psychology in professional sport. I think people think it's more of like a, a crisis thing when you need that help. But it's not. A lot of it's being proactive and trying to seek every possible advantage you can. And that visualisation, whether it be in recovering from an injury or imagining yourself succeeding in an area that perhaps your confidence isn't as high as it might be. I mean, that can be applied to, to anyone beyond the realms of sport as well. So anyone could really learn from what you did there. 100% and the stuff that Andy does with myself 
No, he does with, um, like I say, he's worked in the Olympics, he's worked in the military, he's worked with professionals, you know, doctors, surgeons, you know, uh, politicians, like all these sorts of people, public speaking, all these things, because people have different challenges, but, you know, the same principles apply. You just, obviously, it's just a different environment that you might be performing in. So the fundamentals are the same. And that's why I think, hopefully, the book can appeal to a wider audience than just rugby, because there's leadership lessons and and sort of psychological lessons that I think people can benefit from. Absolutely. And you, the second P that you talk about is pro- professionalism, holding yourself to minimum requirements and setting yourself standards, not limits. Yeah, I, I remember a young, um, when I was a young boy in school and one teacher said to me, um, you know, reach for the stars because if you fail, you'll still reach the sky. And I have always thought that and I always pride myself on trying to be the best professional that I could ever be. So when I used to take the pitch, and it used to give me so much confidence, people would be like, are you going to be nervous about playing against that guy? And I'd be like, well, no, because he hasn't got my genetic capabilities athletically. He hasn't eaten as well as I have. He hasn't trained as hard as I have. He hasn't recovered as well as I have. He doesn't have the belief and the willpower that I have. He just can't. He just can't be as good as me. And I'm, I was so professional because it gave me all these psychological edges. If I knew I didn't drink, if I knew I didn't eat... Uh, the right food, oh, made sure I ate the right foods, didn't go out, you know, didn't misbehave myself, made sure I looked after my body, then I knew when I took the field of play that I was in the best possible physical shape I could be in. So I sort of said, I'm not saying to live like a monk and not go out and enjoy yourself or have a pizza. Like, I'd always do that in the week because you need those little rewards along the way. You, otherwise, you just drive yourself mad and it's not sustainable long term. But, you know, for 95% of the time, you know, I did think I was, you know, the best professional that I could possibly be. So, yeah, and that applies to the way you conduct yourself in public, particularly as a captain, you know, as a role model, the the influence you have on the players around you. You, you want that to be infectious and infiltrate, you know, the team that you're in. And, and from a press point of view, that can, you can use the media as a platform to portray that as well. So, yeah, professionalism was a big one for me. Yeah, going the extra mile, it sounds like, then gives you that extra confidence when you step on. If you know you've ticked all the boxes, then it actually gives you a layer of confidence. When I was in school and I used to revise for exams, I revised my absolute socks off, me and my twin brother. People would go to a library nine till six o'clock and they'd say, yeah, just a nine hours of revision. I've been revising all day. But I was like, well, you're not because you've been socialising, chatting to your mates for two hours. You've been having about five coffee breaks. You've been on Instagram and Twitter for half the time. I made sure when I revised, I did seven, eight hours solid revision every day and I'd break it down into half-hour segments and me and my twin brother were exactly the same. You know, so I worked so hard at my GCSEs and A-levels, but I sort of applied that then into sport as well. So I've always been like that as a person, you know, very sort of meticulous in my planning. Um, you know, it's like the old saying, it's a, it's, a, it's a cliche, but, you know, fail to prepare, prepare to fail. It's very similar. I always thought... And, I, and I do, it does seem to happen in life. I always think what you put in is definitely what you get out, you know, and that works out majority of the time. So, yeah, I sort of live by yeah, that sort of hard work, really. And I like what Warren Gatland said as well, who's obviously a coach with the Lions and Wales, uh, being the best at everything that doesn't require talent. So things like efforts and hard work. And you were the absolute personification of that. Yeah, no, he used to say that. And I thought it was a really valid point. So not everyone in the world is blessed when it comes to their passing ability or kicking ability or tackling ability. But... It doesn't take any talent to get up off the floor. It takes no talent to work hard around the field. It takes no talent to get up early and do training. You know, they're the things which you've got to be the best at in the world, really. So it's easy, you know, being able to be given the tools, but to actually be able to be self-motivated. And it's got to be something from within. You know, I see some parents who talk about their kids and they're forcing them to do something. If you want to get to the very top at something, 
the very whatever field you're in you've got to have a deep underlying passion and self-motivating sort of power from within you to want to do it you can't get to the very top with someone pushing you and forcing you you've got to kind of want to do it at the same time so yeah that's how um that's how the sort of i felt and, and how warren sort of used to see about talent be the, be the best at everything that requires no talent and you're obviously a fan of Michael Johnson and you quote him from his book Gold Rush and by the way Michael Johnson a former Don't Tell Me The Score guest so you join him in that pantheon oh, of greats you I'm are honest. I mean Sam good I didn't want to say it but you are yeah um, <laughs> and he talks about desire being important but drive being even more so and actually what I found interesting was how you noticed how some kids get it the wrong way around so they have this topsy-turvy thinking they might come and say to you Sam how do I get that Range Rover that perhaps you got from the success that you had on the pitch and you talk about the problem there being putting output above input. Somebody, I had Academy kids saying that. How do you get a boot deal? How do you get Addy boots? How do you get Land Rover? I'm like, mate, play for Wales, play for the Lions. Like, a good bit of advice I had from a coach was you look after the rugby and be the best player you can possibly be, and everything else will fall into place naturally. Don't go chasing those things. So, some people's motivation is wrong, and some people's motivation might be money. Or it might be to look after their family, which is great, but the material things in life won't give you, if if that's what you're chasing, that's not going to give you the longevity at the very top of the game. And I don't read many sports books, but yeah, Michael Johnson's a fascinating character. And um, yeah, from from what I read with him, you know, he's a really fascinating book to listen to. And there's a lot of things that he talked about in his book, which I definitely learnt off as well. Yeah. Now, the third P you talk about is is performance. And this is quite, you talk about topsy-turvy thinking. This is kind of counterintuitive, perhaps. The idea that the best way of being a selfless leader or the best version of yourself that you can be is on many occasions actually to be selfish. So it's about learning the importance of actually saying no and judging whether something's urgent and important and whether or not you should do it. So some people feel the need when they're captain to be in control of everything. And I think the biggest lesson I learned as a leader was that you've got to be able to delegate responsibilities. You might think you know everything, but you don't. And you need other people around you who can have input and influence the working week and the match. And you need that input from everywhere. So I ended up having a really good group of people beneath me. But what that enables you to do is the number one priority, which is your performance. And a really good bit of advice I heard from Andy McCann again, sorry if I keep referring to him, but... He said, and he's, I heard him do a talk, and he said to a, a group of sort of business leaders, a room of directors and um, you know CEOs and stuff, he said, if it wasn't for your job title, would people follow you? Meaning that if people didn't know you were chief executive, or didn't know you were a director, or didn't know you were the boss, would would they perceive you as a leader? Would you be in charge? And the reason you command that is, and in a rugby example, would be your performance. You've got to, you've got to be a leader first in the actions that you do. So... It sounds kind of the wrong word to use in a team sport because you do put the team first, but you have to be selfish in your own preparation still to make sure that you get that right because that's when you earn the respect of your peers. So that's where that came from. And I like what you say about not letting your standards slip. And you give this quite interesting example, which was before a match when someone wheeled out a birthday cake for you and they all sang happy birthday and you were like, nope, I'm not having a slice. Not because it would have done you any harm, but you knew that then if you let that standard slip, it could have a knock-on effect. Yeah, somebody said once an analogy to me. It's like if you're walking towards the end of the cliff and you're 10 yards away from that cliff, yeah, all right, having that piece of cake might have only made me nine steps away from that cliff. Then if I went to bed an hour later, then I'd be eight steps away. And if I didn't have a good breakfast, I'd be seven steps away. Then suddenly, if, if all these little things just creep in, 
I don't believe in myself like I would have had I not done it. So yeah, one slice of cake wouldn't have changed my performance, but that was just the sort of standards I set myself, and that just got me in the frame of mind to be able to enable I could perform at the best that I possibly could. Um, it was a lovely gesture. It was my birthday out in the World Cup, and it was we just won the quarterfinal, going into a semi-final, I think, and. You know, I had a birthday cake made for me, so I cut it all up and let all the players tuck into it, but I couldn't have a piece. So, uh, yeah, I was very sort of sort of diligent like that. Did they give you any stick for that? Yeah, maybe, but it was only banter. I mean, like, because there's, there's some guys who are just like me, and a lot of guys wouldn't. I remember I was in a room, and one player, he went to have one of the biscuits that you get in your hotel room two days for a game. And I was like, what are you doing? He said, well, I'm going to have a biscuit and my cup of tea. And I was like, you're going to eat that now, two days for a game? And like like now, don't get me wrong, when I was playing towards the end of my days, I would have had a cup of tea and a, and a biscuit two days for a game. I was a little bit too probably um, paranoid about what I was eating in my early days, but that's just what I was like. You know, That's just the way I was in my preparation. I just wanted to make sure I could get everything absolutely right. This theme of kind of being true to yourself and exercising self-discipline is something that sort of came up time and time again. And I think of something that's quite associated with rugby are those initiations that clubs go through or universities go through. Perhaps it's not quite as prevalent now as it once was where, you know, you're forced to drink all sorts of stuff or it could be a pretty horrendous initiation, essentially. That, that's kind of yeah. the rugby reputation. And, and again, it comes down to what you making a decision. No, I'm going to do what's right for me. And I found that really interesting as well. Not only how that was good for you, but how that would empower other people. So just explain what happened there. So don't get me wrong. Like, I think it's great in rugby that you have team socials and team bonding. And I would jump in on those sessions every now and then. But sometimes when the timing wasn't right and I say, yeah, no, I'm not drinking today, boys. And they were like, no, you have to. I was like, I'm not drinking point blank I'm just not drinking it's not right for me one I, I cope with it really badly anyway compared to probably a lot of people but I get younger players then coming up to me a lot of them going uh, before a team social mate are you drinking today uh, but no I'm not drinking and they go oh, I'm going to stick with you then so like I did this when I was quite young and the people then ended up respecting my decision as I got older that's just not what I do and I there is a place for it you know and I think teams do get to know each other really well when you go out and you have a good few drinks together so I'd never stop it happening but for me, it didn't really work. I didn't play rugby necessarily for the social side of the game. And that people play it for the social side, which is great. You know, that's And I'm not complaining about that at all. But I was different in the sense of I played rugby because I was just chasing excellence. That was the platform that I used rugby for. I wanted to get to the very top. So, yeah, you want to enjoy yourself along the way. Of course you do. And I did sit down and have a couple of beers with teammates You know, when, when the time was right. But I was chasing excellence the whole time, which is why... I didn't really enjoy those sort of team socials and players are calling me boring for it but I'm like well that's just not what was that's not what it was about for me you know I just wanted to be the best possible player I could be and I wanted to sort of try and leave a legacy you know so that was just you know how I prepared myself for matches This Mother's Day celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile whether it's for your mom a mother figure or yourself as a mom find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. 
Get started today at plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. plushcare.com slash weightloss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. And we know that you know, there is a pressure to, say, for example, drink culturally in the U.K., so this is kind of, again, a universal thing. So what advice would you have then for someone who, you know, is out on a Saturday night, they don't want to drink, right? And everyone's like, go on, go on, go on, go on. How do you withstand in that moment? What advice would you have for someone? Obviously for you, it was excellence, but for, for Joe Public. Well, I say this now, I still don't drink now. So I go out for a family meal and uh, I'm the you know, I'm the family taxi. You know, I drive around everyone, they love it. I drive everyone to all the family meals, They all I pick them all up. They go, go on, just have one. And I, well, I don't enjoy it, and I can have a good time without having a drink. Like I don't need drink to have a good time. And I know I'm, I found it hard to understand when I was younger, because I thought everyone should have been like me. But I realise I'm the minority because most people do like drinking. But for me, I don't need a drink to have a good time. I can have a brilliant time without having a drink. Don't get me wrong, I've had a drink and had a brilliant time. So like I'm not saying I'm a, I'm like a monk and I don't drink. I've had some great nights out. But um, yeah, you don't need. If you don't want to do it. That's why I say be true to yourself. If you don't want to do it. You don't do it. You don't have to do anything in life that you don't want to do. You know. So um, yeah, just be. That's why you need to be strong-willed, really. So do you think that's the most important thing then, underpinning all of your P's? Is this being true to yourself, authenticity, if you like? Yeah, I think so. And don't get me wrong. There's obviously some compromise when you when you're in a team sport. You need to do some things that you don't like doing. That's like anything in life. There's always something that you don't want to do. And you build it to be this big, horrible thing. You do it, and it never actually turns out to be as bad as you probably think. So you sort of build it up to be this big, terrible thing in your mind. Of course, there's things in life that you've got to do, which you don't have to. But and I do think that you have got to go out your comfort zone to achieve. You know, you can't just sit in your comfort zone all the time. Sometimes you might be willing to push yourself out your comfort zone yourself. Sometimes it might take a nudge from a coach or from a family member or your parent or your partner to help you get into that place. But once you complete something, that sense of satisfaction is amazing. So. I'm not saying to take the easy route, you know, you do have to go out of your comfort zone as well to achieve, but obviously if you know something's going to be detrimental to your performance, and that's when, you know, you draw the line. You definitely went the extra mile, and I thought a nice example of this, you even, you had this kind of brainwave to even read the referee's handbook. Now, I thought this was a great illustration of seeking advantage, seeking to get that extra little um, leg up in unobvious areas. So I was lucky that when I was in school, I had a, a teacher who was a professional referee. So I remember saying to him, can you get hold of a referee's book? And this is before the days where you could access this stuff online. You can just go on like World Rugby, you know, and find the law book online. But you know, this is going back to when I was 16, so maybe 14 years ago. I said, can I have a rugby book? Can I have a referee book, please? And I didn't study the whole thing, but it was just like, I just read the breakdown stuff because I knew but playing number seven, what would set me apart would be that understanding of the breakdown and being an absolute specialist. So I sort of say to my advice to people now who are young back rowers or young players, how do you make it to the top? I'm like, well, to get to the very, very top, you need to have something which separates you from someone else. You need to have that X factor. You need to have. You need to be specialist at something. So what is your strength? You work on everything else, but what is your strength? And make sure make sure you are the single best person at that. So for me, like my what I thought would set me apart would be 
being a breakdown specialist, which is why I probably understood the breakdown younger at a younger age than most people. So I had a head start on everyone. So when I came in at 2021, 20, and in my position, you know, you're winning turnovers, which is quite hard to do. I've been studying that for the last five, six years and putting it into practice when I was playing for my school or playing for my age group, you know, regional teams and the academies and stuff. So I put that to practice from quite a young age. So yeah, I just sort of wanted to sort of seek any advantage that I could. And that speaks to the power of going the extra mile. And then when you got on the pitch, that would give you that extra confidence as well. And that's a perfect example of that. Yeah, it is. It's just like if you feel that you're the most prepared you can possibly be, you'll be so much more confident in your own abilities. So if you can honestly say you go into a a fixture for in my example I'm sure it would be the same in the military for example they wouldn't go into battle without making sure they've ticked every single box you're not going to put your life on the line you know not checking your equipment not making sure you've prepared properly it's the same with sport so you've got to make sure that you've prepared properly so when you do cross that whitewashing around onto the pitch you know you are best prepared as possible and I remember Clive Woodward saying something to this effect which is you know confidence just boils down to being perfectly prepared yeah exactly that's that's exactly that's actually a good analogy that's exactly how it is if you know you've done everything you will guarantee be so much more confident so like say like a best man speech for example I get people saying to me, oh, I'm really nervous. I'm going to do a best man speech. I'm not any public speaking coach at all. I've had some coaching, but I'm not a public speaking coach. And the only advice I can think really is, it's not like, oh, you know, you hear people say, oh, imagine everyone's naked or something. It's like, well, well that doesn't help. I don't know what that means. But I just say, well, just prepare. Like, prepare your speech. Learn your speech off by heart. And I guarantee you, you'll feel so much better about it. And it's true. And if you need a piece of paper, you need a piece of paper. If you want to do it without a piece of paper, just study it a bit harder. But write down a speech. Make sure it's genuine and authentic. Don't try and force it. Don't try and be fake. People would much rather an honest, open, heartfelt speech than a fake, funny speech. Just speak truthfully. And if there's some funny anecdotes in there, put them in. But learn it off by heart. And I guarantee you, you won't feel as nervous. It's the same with, with playing a rugby match. You know, Be prepared. And I'm sure you'll feel a lot more confident. Yeah, because confidence comes and goes, doesn't it? But preparation is one of those controllables, that whole, you know, control the controllables thing. Exactly. I always say that in my career. So people say, how are you going to cope with playing against this player? I'm like, I, I don't know what he's going to do in a game. I can watch starter plays. I can watch the opposition to a certain degree, which I did. But I always focused on what I was in control of, which is me, my team, making sure we were prepared as possible, making sure I was prepared as possible from a personal point of view. And I always said to everyone, make sure that you do your individual role to the best of your ability, then all the cogs will fit into place and they'll turn perfectly, you know. So you can't worry about the whole team. Focus on your specialist role. And as a team, we'll guarantee be much better. So you can control that, but you can't control everything the opposition is going to do. So I didn't sort of waste hours looking at the opposition. I looked at them and I studied them, but I always made sure I prioritised myself first. And this actually taps into the fourth P, which is perspective, where... You know, if you had to make a big decision, you you had seven people who you would consult, family members, friends, coach. Andy, I think, was in there as well, the the famous Andy now. Um, (laughs) uh, But ultimately, you were the one who made the decision yourself. Yeah, so perspective was... So say, for example, I always get asked about the red card. Uh, I got sent off in a semi-final when I was 23 after 70 minutes. And like everybody thought it was doom and gloom and... I think until you go through a bit of adversity or something bad in your life, it doesn't put what you're going through into perspective. So, and I'm a, I'm a patron for Valindra Cancer Centre, which is like Wales's premier sort of cancer hospice, cancer centre. So, like, I've seen people in really bad, you know, unfortunate sort of predicaments. So, my granddad passed away six weeks after that World Cup, and I was pretty close with him. And then that just kind of put it to bed for me because it gave me a dose of perspective that, like, 
right, there's much more to life than the game of rugby. Because I, I always thought it was the be-all and end-all that I got sent off, like the world, world had caved in on me. And I see people who are going through terminal illnesses who are extremely brave. Or sp- I've spoken to people in the military who are putting their lives on the line. Sometimes you just need to lift yourself out of your own little bubble and have a have a little sense of perspective really and then suddenly what you're going through probably isn't as bad as what some people in this world are going through so that's sort of where perspective comes from and it's easy to get things out of whack you say uh, i think it's probably another one of andy's quotes you're never as good as they say and never as bad either and i think it is easy to magnify things in your head so once you've been sent off you had you had impressions of being treated like david beckham was after 1998 yeah. but actually the reality was nothing like that somebody said to me before that world cup you get a captain your country to a semi-final of a World Cup and you're going to come back a national hero. I, I don't know how that was possible, but that isn't like what happened. It was incredible. But yeah, that was a, a tough experience to go through. But then I wouldn't change it because I always think things happen for a reason. I, I always believed in that. And then the two years after that, there was a lot of success for me individually and, and as a team. So I think going through a bit of hardship, going through a bit of adversity is all part of the learning curve. So I wouldn't go back and change anything. You know, people sort of say, would I change anything? I absolutely wouldn't. You know, I always think things happen for a reason is how you learn from those experiences is what makes you better as a person. So you can't just have it, can't have the rub of the green for 10 years. You know, there's ups and downs, you know, no professional career is an upward curve all the way. You get sort of hurdles and hiccups along the way, but it's just making sure that you realise what the end goal is and you get back on track as soon as possible and learn from mistakes. Yeah, you talked about the red card making you as a person. Specifically, what do you think you gained from that experience? Oh, it's a mixture of everything. I mean, it catapulted me into sort of, from a rugby perspective, like world recognition and, you know, exposure to press and, oh, the publicity was incredible. Not in necessarily a good way because I'm quite a private person so I didn't particularly enjoy that. But I quite liked... It sort of turned me into, which didn't become a priority for me, but I actually enjoyed this part of being a rugby player. It actually turned me into a role model almost because I, I always hate the the way petulant footballers react to penalty decisions and cards and things. I always thought I'm never going to be that person. It's just terrible for young players to see. You need to treat referees with respect and the sport you're in with respect. So I kind of that's how I was anyway. I didn't do it on purpose, but the sort of platform it's given me to sort of try and be a role model from that. I actually really enjoy it. It's really rewarding when I go to primary schools or teachers come up to me and they thank me for the way I've carried myself as a professional. And that's like really nice sort of accolades to have. You know, normally you think it's, you just want to be a good player, but when people really admire what the way you've been as a person, really, then that's that's really flattering. The reaction to your red card, Sam, really speaks to the values that rugby has as a game, and it's clear that you as well are a person very much driven by your own values. Is that fair? Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I do love the sport for that for that one reason, and uh, like you know, yeah, looking back, yeah, it was like a dangerous tackle, and I can see why it was a red card. Even at the time, I, I didn't probably agree with it. And I thought it was a yellow, but the reaction I got after it from everybody in the in the rugby world was incredible. I remember walking down the street two days later, handing out in public, and it was like outdoor cafes and bars. And it was like quite a long road of maybe fifty to hundred yards, and. I didn't want to walk down it because I was with Warren Gatland and all the coaching, uh, some of the coaching staff going to my hearing to try and get me off my ban and everybody just stood up like a Mexican wave as I walked down applauding, cheering us and clapping and uh, it was amazing to get that level of support. So the rugby community does do that when players have gone through bad injuries and illnesses, people from all over the world come out and support each other, you know, and there's always like that sort of rugby family tag 
and line within the game. But that's definitely true. You know, I love the sport for that reason. Now, on to P number five, positivity. Now, you're naturally a very positive person, yeah. um, but you give this uh, interesting anecdote about when Warren Gatlin told the, was it the Lions or the Wales squad? I can't remember, right? Whoever thinks they're a, a starter for next week's oh, game, yeah. stand over there. And everyone knocked off a bit of false modesty and stood stock still apart from Mike Phillips, standard. <laughs> and um, and Warren Gatlin loved it. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously, like, say when I'm doing press, if I said what I was true, I can say it now, but if I said when I was playing what I was truly thinking, I would come across as arrogant, which is why I didn't say it, because I always thought I was the best guy. Warren wanted people to almost verbalise that and not be like embarrassed to do so. So if somebody did just walk straight over to the starting 15, presuming they were going to be picked, he loved that level of confidence. And that's the level of confidence you need to win a World Cup, for example, you know. So I always had this really sort of deep belief in myself. And uh, so when people said, I'm like, are we going to win this game? And I was thinking, ridiculous. Of course I, I think we're going to win this game. Uh, you know, that's just the way I thought. It wasn't naive. Some people might have thought I was being naive, but... That was just the way I approached everything that I did. You know, always believed in myself, always believed in the team. And I don't think it's something you can say to a group of players, right, believe we're going to win. And they all go, oh, okay, yeah, let's just believe it. It's got to be something which is developed and which is built from yourself and from the environment and the culture that you're in. You can't just click your fingers and just believe. You know, you've got to earn that belief from all the things that you do and all your behaviours, you know. So that's where everything from, like, you know, persistence and positivity and perspective and professionalism all come into all come into play. You know, they all then mean then you can believe in yourself if you do all those things. So, yeah, I always believed in myself and uh, Warren was very much the same as a coach. He was great from that perspective, very positive guy. And you can't, like you say, you can't just automatically think okay I believe we're going to win or I believe I'm you know brilliant or whatever but what you can do and you'd speak quite interestingly about you know when people are nervous the brain has an inclination to focus on the bad things that could happen for example I might lose I might make a fool of myself etc but the key is to switch the focus to sort of be aware of that and and focus on the opportunity e.g we're going to win or I could you know, this could be the making of me. That you can yeah. choose, can't you? So people, I used to sit down and get changed in dressing rooms and, and people would sit next to me, younger players, and go, uh, you're getting your boots on, bit of silence. And they go, do you get nervous still? Probably expecting me to be like, no, 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 mate. I've, no, I've been on World Cups, Lions tours, I've played nearly 200 pro games. Nah, I don't get nervous, it's easy. I go, yeah, every game I get nervous, and especially the big, big games you're playing in. Big Lions finales, you know, World Cups, Six Nations, Grand Slams and that. You know, when people just say, oh, just forget about the nerves, just zone out and forget about them. You cannot do that. Nobody can do that. It's impossible. But like you said, rather than worry about what might go wrong, what you've got to do is is focus on the potential outcome and what what you could achieve. And then suddenly, so say from worrying about, oh, I'm going to drop a ball in front of 10 million people or we're going to lose a Lions series, or I might miss a tackle, I might get injured. No, don't focus on that. Focus on the carrot. The carrot is, say, for example, going into the last Lions game, the carrot is if we win this game, you as an individual and us as a team are probably going to be have your names, our names, set in stone in in rugby folklore forever. The history is the greatest ever British and Irish Lions team beating the back-to-back world champions away from home against all the odds. That is the carrot. That's where we can come back in two hours' time and that's what you could be and that's what we could achieve. Suddenly that 
nervous energy which is still there but along the continuum it just moves up just to, towards excitement and that's where you want to be you know you want to don't want to go in your shell you want to go out express yourself be brave that's where i think you need to have that focus on what what is the carrot that's dangling in front of you and focus on that rather than worry what's going to go wrong yeah and nervous energy and excitement are very very similar and to quote uh, X, don't tell me the score, um, guest, and also one of your heroes, Michael Johnson again, and I'm probably going to mangle this quote, but it's something like, within pressure is the shadow of great opportunity, which sort of sums it up, doesn't it? It's just about getting that, that focus right. Persistence. And I'm going to knock out a quote of yours, which is that everyone has room for improvement. No one's perfect. And pursuing both of those things or understanding both of those things, that's where persistence comes in. I think for anyone to realise, ask any, not just sports person, Anyone who's done well in business or in any career, it's never an upward curve, constant upward curve. There's always problems and setbacks along the way. It's just making sure that you stay focused, you stay true to yourself, you remember what the goal is and you keep going and you get through those sticky patches. That's where you need that persistence. You can't just basically don't give up. You know, you just can't give up, you know, and they always, there's that, you know, there's that one quote. I'm not a quote kind of guy, but, you know, there's that quote that like about, uh, it's not about, being in battle and falling it's being in battle falling and then getting up and going again you know that's the that's the that's what persistence is you know never giving up so when people said to me oh oh you need like there's some players like you need to be tougher you need to be tough and then that player would go out the next week and he'd smack someone in the face on the floor and i was like that's not being tough being tough is being resilient it's never giving up it's never known when you're beaten it's picking up guys when the chips are down you know always believing in yourself and that is persistence and sort of never forgetting what the goal is and making sure you do whatever you can to get back on track and continue to pursue that goal that's what persistence is you know and it's even wanting the ball as you say when you have a rubbish game right on to the last p sam people this is almost the richest of the uh, the p's i would say certainly up there and right at the start we spoke about the importance of knowing yourself that's kind of the basis upon which everything else flows and this is about once you knowing yourself then learning about others and you went above and beyond when you were captain so for example even going to sit on the table where you knew the fewest people to get to know people who you didn't know that well more so yeah how what are the keys then in terms of um, being able to get the best out of people around you so being a captain or a leader you need to be able to get information from everywhere so you need to make sure you that you're approachable and that players feel they can speak to you so players wouldn't even know i did this but i would go and sit by people who perhaps i didn't know don't go over and you have to like make conversation and be loud and boisterous just sit in quietly and then just naturally you can start chatting to people and just get to know them a little bit better just because if you are a captain you need to be approachable you need to have develop relationships with all sorts of people which i found hard to do because i was a naturally a very quiet guy but at the same time like you know i've been so you've got to do that as a leader because you need to be able to that you get information from everywhere no matter how old or how young the players are it's really important that you can do that and then like, you know, like lion's tours for example i've spoken to the selectors players didn't go on that tour because they weren't good people you can't you might be a good person a good player but if you're not a good person as well you're going to disrupt the dynamics of the team and the, the harmony of the team so the lion stores were great and we all got on really well because when they're going through the the team and they're picking guys from england and scotland and ireland and they're going through it with all the different national selectors they'll say for someone's name for example who's obviously a top player 
they'll look at somebody who knows him well and go, yeah, he's a really good guy, really good person to be on tour with, you know, great team player, he's in. That'll cement your place in the Lions team. So making sure you're a good team player and a good person, you know, and you're selfless is, is so, so important. So there's plenty of good players, which people from the outside might be like, why didn't he make it on the Lions tour? He's playing great. Maybe he's not a good team player. That's why he didn't go on there. So people is a few meanings, but yeah, you know, very important to be able to get to know people and also be a good person and good team player at the same time. And what I found interesting was, and this is a great example of good leadership, of good management, was when you were on the Lions tour, you did your best to empower other players. So there wasn't this insecurity on your part. You actually like to give them roles and trust others to, to, to kind of take ownership of certain areas of the tour. Yeah, like I said, you can't do everything. And if you if you try and do everything, you're going to get so bogged down with with stuff that you're going to be so stressed out. You're not going to perform well. It's just going to have a negative effect. So, I both Lions tours. I remember sitting down with um, guys, you know, senior guys from each country, and we have all sorts of committees for music, entertainment, uh, travel, tour guides, all this sort of funny stuff. And you say, right, who would be good on that committee? So they say, oh, he would be great at this, and he would be great at that. So everybody feels included. And these are things which I don't want to be worrying about, you know, as a captain. I've got plenty of things on my plate. So I think being able to delegate responsibility is really good, you know, to trust other people. Because, and we'd had like a leadership team, and so that was a bit more from like a social point of view. Then we'd have a leadership group. You know, I had this at club level, international level. We'd have a leadership group of maybe six or seven people where you sit down on a Monday. I might have a meeting which is two minutes long. It might be 45 minutes long. Talk about everything that was good and bad in the last week, how you want the future week to shape. These guys have massive influence in the decision-making on the field of play as well. And when there's a penalty, you might only have 10 seconds. I think some captains feel rushed just to make a decision with a referee straight away. Take 10 seconds to have a look around at your senior leaders and they might all just like nod at you because you know what each other's thinking somebody might have a really valid point and might be jogging over with his hand up take 10 take 10 seconds to listen to him and listen to what he has to say because these are all the key decision makers that you need it's not yeah. just the captain you need plenty of guys who have that influence so me as captain i might have been the one who pointed to the post or flips the coin there's six or seven guys who had as much influence as i did in the working weekend in the game as well I think the All Blacks call it having a CEO in every position and you need to have a certain level of uh, self-assurance to be able to trust uh, other people in that, as you did there. Right, just finally, Sam, you talk about, you know, that final Lions game when it was the, uh, the, the infamous draw or the famous draw between you and the All Blacks and it all came down to that moment where the All Blacks were awarded a penalty and because you've had a, an approach of less is more, you don't just chunter away and you give an example of like the noisy kid at school who talk so much that it eventually just becomes like white noise. But because you picked your moment so well and you treated people with respect, including referees, and listened to what they want, it actually paid off in this final moment, didn't it? So I see footballers... I don't mean to to make, you know, talk ill of footballers. Not all of them. Some players. And the way they talk to referee disgusts me, you know. And uh, I really don't like it. And um, so with that referee decision, you know, I remember I was captain of, of a team and uh, one coach said to me, I don't think you were talking enough to the referee. And I thought, I was like, I respectfully disagree because I've spoken to referees after games. I've spoken to them at the training grounds. I'm like, surely if a player is on to you all the time, constantly questioning what you're doing, it becomes just noise. And they said, absolutely, it does. You just don't listen to it. And it would be the same in the workplace. If somebody is just constantly telling you what you're doing wrong all the time, it's going gonna, it's gonna to annoy you. So... I always went down the mantra, less is more, and I'd joke around with the ref, and I'd be like, right, before the game, if you're doing the coin toss, I'd say, I'm, I'll speak to you three times a half maximum, I promise. And I wouldn't approach them more than that, because then when you do approach them, 
they know is going to be something valid, hopefully, and that's going to be worthwhile listening to. So I remember that second test, there was that, uh, sorry, the second half of that third test, that incident happened, and um, usual suspects were going, they were pretty angry with the decision from a, a Lions point of view. And I heard the referee, yeah. <laughs> and I heard the referee saying, just the captain, please. So I remember thinking, right, oh, I got nothing to lose. I just walk over. So I remember just walking over calmly, just to ask him. I, to be honest, I'm not because the game happens hundred miles an hour. I wasn't 100 percent sure what I was asking him to look for, but I knew there could be something in it. There could have been a 50-50. There might have been something which would have swayed our sort of advantage. I just, I was, I was just pretty desperate. I was like, mate, you just got to check. Just, just please, you got to check. This is too big a call. And then he went to his fourth official. I think the fourth official was in his ear as well. But I guess the two lessons from that, really, for me, is one, less is more. You don't constantly need to be badgering someone all the time. And two, which is something my mum taught me, which is manners don't cost a thing. You know, treat people with respect, be human with people. And for me, you're much more likely to get more back from them. Right, Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on Don't Tell Me The Score. And we've talked about your seven Ps to make someone or make you or make anyone really happier and more successful. And I think if anyone applies the P's that you've outlined in their own lives, then there's no doubt that they will benefit from that. But if you had to sort of sum it up, and I'm loath to put words in your mouth, but it is it about <laughs> being true to yourself and working your ass off in a nutshell. But, you know, over to you. How would you sum it up? If you had to put it into a sentence, Sam Warburton's keys to a healthier, happier and more successful life. Oh, for me, um, to say like I get asked to give advice for, to be a professional rugby player, like for me, everything I guess is centred around like being the hardest worker being the best professional prioritizing things not to the detriment of your family of course but you know having setting yourself a goal set yourself really high what's your like a lifetime ambition and do what it takes to get there not to the detriment of your family but do what it takes to get there and that might be you know mindset work ethic but just set yourself a goal set yourself a purpose every single day to get out of bed and chase something and then when you achieve it you know it's the most satisfying feeling in the world Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. You're a legend on the pitch, and now I can confirm as well, off it. <laughs> Thank you very I, much. I hope you've enjoyed our chat. No, it's been great. Thanks for having me. Thanks very much for listening to this episode of Don't Tell Me The Score. I really hope you enjoyed our conversation. And I would, of course, be delighted to hear your thoughts, ideas, and questions. Do get in touch via my website, simonmundy.com. I do really appreciate you listening. And if you could leave a kind rating and review, I would be sincerely grateful. All that remains is for me to say, I hope you'll join me again next time. Until then, thank you and goodbye. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.